It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine podcast. I'm Hillary Georgie, and with me today is Nathan Makaborski. Hello. And John Schwartz. Hey there. So we just had a wild card game. We won. That's very Ooh. exciting. <laughs> and now we're going to play Boston, which is also exciting. Yeah. How do you feel? Uh, excited. feel uh, like... Still need to uh, up my caffeine intake to recover from, from Wednesday night. I had, Nathan, you were sitting next to me. I had my coffee and my inhaler right next to each other for the entire game. <laughs> you were well prepared. I was, I was. Yeah, I mean, that was awesome. It was like, uh, you know, kind of picked up right where we left off here at home last year. I mean, 6-0 and in the postseason last season and uh, was expecting a good performance from the crowd and... They certainly delivered on Wednesday night. They I mean, did not uh, disappoint from the very first second. They yeah. were on their feet. I, I felt the um, the upper deck kind of bounce a little mm-hmm. underneath my feet, even during the uh, the national anthem. So uh, yeah, it was loud from the beginning. Severino came out firing and firing strikes. <laughs> and ten, ten pitch first inning. A after ten pitch first inning. Twenty nine pitches to get one out. Nine of them year. fastballs. Um, he was just, you know, I talked to him afterwards, and he said, "I was just trying to hit the glove. That's it." <laughs> you know, I, I think the experience for not only him but for everybody on this team who was here last year, uh, just having been through those crazy games and those battles with uh you know minnesota and then cleveland and then houston all that experience is really worth a lot and uh you saw it on wednesday night i mean severino looked like a totally different guy out there than he did during last year's wild card game and you know nine pitches into the bottom of the first we had a two nothing lead and the place was up for grabs it was uh another memorable night in october Experience experience definitely pays off, but a couple of new guys with yeah. no postseason experience also chipped in. Luke Voigt had a huge triple. John Carlos Stanton had his first ever postseason hit, which was a home run. Yeah. And was... Andy Hoare went had a hit and a walk in his mm-hmm. limited time out there before he got replaced defensively. Yeah, everyone chipped in. Aaron Boone was asked uh, the day before the wild card game about his catcher. You know, is Gary Sanchez going to be your catcher? And there was, you know, Sanchez had had his share of defensive issues throughout the year and Boone said in no uncertain terms he's my catcher and I'm very confident in it and I thought Sanchez had an unbelievable game behind the plate I mean I I know he struggled a little bit at the hitting but the way he handled those pitchers especially in the the fourth inning when Seve ran into a little bit of trouble there was I counted at least I think four pitches that easily could have skated by I mean that he really you know picked out of the dirt or whatever and that that inning could have been a turning point I mean it could have been disastrous you know if they if they A's scored two runs on past balls there and it's a 2-2 game uh 
everything could change from there on out. So I thought Sanchez deserved a lot of credit. And, um, you know, like you said, even though all, all the people who, who weren't here last year, uh, whether it's rookies or, or new guys to the team, you know, there's something to be said for that too, whether it's uh, Andujar or Glaber, like kind of not knowing any better, not knowing mm-hmm. that it's, you know, <laughs> like how hard it is really to get to this point and, or, you know, just guys like Voight who who are still out to kind of prove themselves or, or Stanton wanting to get that first postseason hit, which, I mean, I felt like that ball, like, never came down. It was like... It's, it's still going. <laughs> you knew it was a clout, and everybody was just kind of, like, waiting to cheer because we didn't know if it was going to be fair or foul. Yeah. And it was just up there forever. So another memorable October night in the Bronx, and uh, I can't believe it's... You know, for the first time in this new stadium, we're going to see Yankees, Red Sox postseason baseball. That's the crazy thing to me. I mean, I think it obviously mostly has to do with just two incredibly memorable series. But, I mean, just doesn't it seem to you like the Yankees and Red Sox have met more in the postseason than twice? Yeah, but nobody on this postseason roster, nobody on this Yankees roster has played Boston in the postseason. They Absolutely. haven't played the Red Sox in the postseason since 2004. It just yeah. feels like people get like so outside of like you know these this area. People get so exhausted by the idea of you know Yankees and Boston and what have you. And it's like no, this has been 14 years waiting to redo this. I, I guess <laughs> it's because those series have been talked about so much yeah. since that it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. The only guy who's seen the Red Sox in the postseason is Aaron Boone. <laughs> <laughs> right there, you go. And uh, I mean, geez, those series. I mean, it was like 03. I've always maintained that Game 7 is the best sporting event I'll ever attend. I was there as a fan. And then the following year, I was there as a, an employee of Major League Baseball. And uh, probably the worst sporting <laughs> event. Probably not try that one. Yeah. At all. No, it was. I, I got there uh, in the second inning, and it was already over. It was like the Yanks were down like six runs or something. And uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm expecting another. Uh, incredible series here between these two teams i mean so many great players on both sides uh you know mvp candidates over on their side and yeah, I, I just can't wait and the, you know the starts starts with a bang with jay happ and chris sale going in game one tonight so it's a pretty good matchup we have a story in our october issue about Jay Happ, which you can find online, and if you are lucky enough to come to a game at Yankee Stadium, you can grab that one while you're here. Yep, the official, the official American League Division Series program ALDS on sale. program, we got it. CC's on the cover. We have a lot, a lot of good content in there, including, like I said, the story about Jay Happ, Game One starter. We got a story about Tanaka, who we don't know Game Two quite yet, but assume. Tanaka will pitch one of these games. Yeah. <laughs> CC Sabathia, like I said, is on the cover. He'll probably see some time. We got a lot in here. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious right now. Um, I'm anxious for these first two games. You know, I'm very curious. Obviously, you know, Sale hasn't exactly looked like himself, you know, velocity-wise and otherwise coming off these injuries. But you figure he's going to have it. And then, you know, I mean, look, David Price, great pitcher, but... <laughs> He's had his troubles with the Yankees. He's had his trouble with the Yankees. There is not a single result of these two games in Boston that would surprise me. Yeah. Um, Really, all five games. I mean, I could see either team sweeping. I could see it being a five-game epic. I could see them for some reason needing six games just because it's too good. (laughs) Um, But it's just going to be fun. I'm I'm sorry. I I, I don't care. I'm so bored of the people who are just like, oh, not Yankees, Red Sox. It's like, you're out of your mind. Like, this is going to be incredible. Yeah. And it's been 
<laughs> like we said, 14 years since we've seen it in the postseason. So. And there's no love lost between these two teams. No. There's been some fireworks this year already. Mm-hmm. CC has always been very vocal about wanting to beat the Red Sox. I think this is going to be an intense, intense series. And so I don't know about you guys. Nate, you mentioned the noise already. So you guys mentioned you were in the Augs box, which was in the right field upper deck. I was in the main box, which is about as far away from each other as we could be. The things that stuck out to me last night were, first off, you mentioned the noise during the national anthem. Mm-hmm. This is definitely my first time being at the stadium in the press box and not hearing the roll call. Like, you could not oh, hear I couldn't. it. I, I, I was going to say the same thing. I was waiting to hear the roll call, and I was like, did I miss it? You I could not hear it. hear it for the life of me. Everybody was so, everybody so loud. Was so loud. So I, I, I read somewhere, I think it was Torres had to, like, signal for Voight to respond to them. Right. Oh, yeah. I couldn't hear it. The other thing... And this gets back to what I was saying about Boston. So I think it was about the fifth or the sixth inning, definitely in the sixth when they started scoring, that, you know, that we want Boston chance mm-hmm. started around the stadium. But what I found fun and interesting was the way it started was you would hear, like, you know, a little cluster in one section to we want Boston. And then on the other side of you, you'd hear another cluster. And maybe at some point it starts getting a little louder and louder. And then you just got to the ninth inning, and that was when the whole stadium at once started that we want Boston chant together. <laughs> and it was like this like hour and a half of building to this one moment where like the <laughs> chorus came in, essentially. Um, Finally got on the same page. And it was like really... Uh, again, I, I just don't know how if you're a player in that situation, you know, not to say you're looking ahead in that ninth inning, but I don't know how you don't get just like mind-bogglingly pumped thinking about this series when that's going on after afterwards in the clubhouse amid the champagne and the beer and and the grossness that was the clubhouse (laughs) serious carnage there (laughs) um i was talking to a bunch of the guys about just the noise level and luke voigt was like loving it he was like it was amazing i've never heard anything so loud this is like what we play for this is so much fun and he was saying to me he was like i think all the other guys on the team are a little bit jealous because i have the luke chant and nobody yeah. else has that. <laughs> I was like you're probably right about that luke <laughs> and everybody was just like they were saying the same thing like we want boston too we want it too and they got it here we are yeah luke voigt will never get booed they're just saying luke <laughs> they're just saying luke they're not booing also because he hits two run triples <laughs> yes. and looks so majestic running around the bases I, I said to the guy next to me luke voigt hits a two run triple and then scores and a sacrifice fly to left is going to be the weirdest sentence i have to type this month right like, that is just not something you walked into this postseason thinking to be ready for he might play 20 years and that sentence will never be written again sacrifice <laughs> fly to left field for Luke Boy. I mean my god I look we all thought he got that ball and it's a good thing for him he ended up on third there because <laughs> I've seen some great pick it's one thing to like watch him pimping it in the moment but then you watch the pictures where he's essentially flipping his bad arm in the air and it's like dude you better start running <laughs> so um the ALDS is upon us, and uh, when I think about the uh, the leaders of this team that helped get us here, certainly two guys come to mind. Brett Gardner is one who, who has helped get us to where we are, and we did a nice big feature on him in our September issue and uh, in the October issue. Big feature story on CeCe Sabathia that you wrote, John, and, and uh, got a nice portrait of CeCe on the cover. So why don't you take us through a little bit what readers can expect, yeah, expect when they bit. pick this up. I don't know whether to talk about what's in the issue or what's not in the issue. Um, <laughs> for a 5,000-word story, I've never had to cut as much as I did from this story. Part of that is just a long time in this game, being lucky enough to work around CC and spend some time with him over the years. Part of it is just that he was incredibly open and willing to talk, as usual, and made time for me in San Francisco. 
and I, this is no exaggeration, I think there are four people, if you go through my transcripts from these interviews, who, four people who I have quotes from saying like, oh man, it's no bother at all, I could talk about CC forever. That is just the sense you get from everyone around the league that, you know, he's a special guy. And what I tried to do in the story, or what I tried to do in the story is not what I ended up doing in the story. What I, what I hoped to do in the story was to write about the last 10 years and how he has evolved from just the moment he came to the Yankees until now. Just the nature of the access they gave me in the Bay Area that basically told me to come out there and they would give me an hour with him, which we weren't going to say no to, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to spend some time at his high school and with him and with his wife, Amber, as they did a big event there. It didn't really make sense to have that access and then write a story about just his time in New York. So the scope ended up getting a lot wider than I had initially planned. But he's just a guy who... You know, he wears every single experience of his life. He carries it with him. You you see every single thing that's gone wrong and every single thing that's gone right if you watch any outing of his on the mound. And just his incredibly strong desire to be a leader and to be a role model and to be a positive force in the Yankees clubhouse in New York and uh, back in his hometown of Vallejo, which is a hard but special place to him. Yeah, I like how you see it in the clubhouse here with the way he, he mentors younger players and takes pitchers like Dellen under his wing. But this kind of goes back in time to you know some of the guys who mentored him. And, uh, you know, we've all heard before, like, the Dave Stewart story and stuff like that about him coming to the the Boys and Girls Club where CeCe was, like, a nine-year-old and his favorite pitcher shows up and inspires him to not just say, I want to become a big leaguer someday, but I want to be like this guy who comes and talks to kids and inspires kids who might be from tough backgrounds. But you have several anecdotes like that from people back in his, you know, his youth or, you know, high school days or whatever. And it's just amazing that he kind of... From such a young age, he set out to do something. I mean, to, to set out and say, I want to become a big league baseball player is one thing. You know, millions of kids have that dream. But to dream even bigger than that but, and then to go ahead and deliver on it is what pretty he incredible. But what he saw in those moments was not just that if you're a big league pitcher, you can come and inspire young kids. I think what he saw was that this is what you're supposed to do if you're a big league pitcher, mm-hmm. that this is what it means to be on that platform, on that pedestal, if you will. You know, his mother, among the cooler people I've met, um, you know, she says, it's just like, this is what he was saying when he was 13. It wasn't just, I'm going to be a major leaguer. It's, I'm going to be a major leaguer and I'm never going to forget Vallejo. And mm-hmm. not only is that a weird thing for anybody to think as a 13-year-old, that's a really strange thing to think when you're in Vallejo. It was not easy for him. And, and, you know, there's one thing I try to highlight in the story. And again, it's a very long story. So, I mean, a lot of these things, it's tough to, you know, hi- isolate any individual thing that, you t- that I take from it or that I tried to put in there. But there's a lot of parallels, which I was trying to get. The story is framed around a parallel of two days at Vallejo High School. But you hear at one point in the way that Dave Stewart talks about growing up in the Bay Area and the way CeCe talks about it. And both of them are just saying, it's like, you know what? I didn't know that this wasn't good. I didn't know that I was missing something. These are guys who just grew up around a lot of crime and a lot of just hardship. And, you know, the, the, the familiar example, like you said, Nate, is this kid hearing the message from Dave Stewart and thinking like, I can do this too. The thing that you don't always see, but that everyone pointed out to me was that there was basically just this mission from the town of Vallejo, the city of Vallejo, that CeCe was not to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. That if there were bad things happening around town, somebody had to get CeCe out of there because he meant too much. He had too much potential and he wasn't a bad kid. It wasn't like he was, he was just a kid. And, you know, when your friends are all doing things, you, you know, your inclination is to just join them and, you know, also throw that rock and also do this thing. And there was just, everyone felt like, you know, Amber, 
told me, you know, she was one of the people. Coach Hobbs, his high school baseball coach, told me about this stuff. Margie told me about this. Everyone was committed. Bad things would be happening, and someone would get CC out of there. Someone would take him home. He says, you know, or Amber says, you know, there's no way you can realize that when it's happening to you. And, I mean, I think we can guess that, frankly, when you're a kid, when everyone's sending you away, when they're going out to have, you know, quote unquote fun it's probably a little frustrating you want to join them in the hijinks and the stupidity whatever you know you don't realize what they're doing for you in that moment when they're saying like dude you got to get out of here like something's gonna happen and or when you walk through a bad neighborhood and the guys are beating up on some kids but then they stop and just let you pass because Mm -hmm. you're cc yeah, uh, it's a special thing that he had. And then, I mean, to be drafted first round right out of high school and pick. hit the major leagues by the time he's twenty. I mean, you know, you're still a baby at that point, practically. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's still opportunities to slip up then. But it seemed like he's always kind of just had this sort of safety net around him, like you described. And and he's not been without his struggles. He's certainly struggled. He's had his ups and downs personally too. But like you said, he's always found a way to kind of rebound or avoid a bigger pitfall than a lot of other people have. And that was the thing. And again, you know, not to keep repeating myself, this is a 5,000 word story, but also it's not like it's the first story ever to be written about CC. A lot of stuff's out there, which I want to stay away from. I mean, but you can read plenty about. One thing I allude to is when he was robbed very early in his career in Cleveland. And was he doing anything wrong? No, he was out, you know, partying. Was he wearing way too much jewelry? Definitely. You can't be that ostentatious about stuff when you're when you don't know what you're doing and when you don't have good sense and security around you yet. But one thing that came from that is he basically called Amber that night and said, if you were with me, this wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. and we need to get married. Mm-hmm. Amber was a high school sweetheart, you know, whatever. And they were really good friends before they were in love with each other. But he said, you know, that I can't have you out there. I'm making bad choices when I'm here by myself. And it goes back to this idea that this was a kid. And I don't want to say that he was sheltered or anything like that because he saw he saw bad stuff. But he had this protection around him that he lost when he was out on his own. And he didn't know how to do anything when he went to you know North Carolina first for the minor leagues. You know, he's going from Vallejo where he's been all his life over to North Carolina and he doesn't know anything. But again, every single time he went somewhere in his career, the adults around him or his peers basically all said, you know, this is a guy we have to take care of. CC, he inspires that in people. And I and I, I don't want to make it as though he doesn't have agency in it. He is a person who fosters and maintains that stuff himself. He is very, very well-intentioned and good-hearted and just kind. You can say he takes a guy like Dellen or Glaber or anyone like that under his wing because he wants to win. And I know that's true, but also I just he sees young kids who don't really know what they're doing and he remembers being a young kid who didn't know what he was doing and it's important to him that that they feel comfortable and they feel good yeah i felt like this was a good time to kind of do an article like this about cc you know when you first pitched it i think back over the summer i was really excited about it because like you said it's been you know 10 years in pinstripes now his future with the team is not necessarily set in stone and he's a uh, Clemente Award nominee this year right because the work that he's done off the field with the Pitch In Foundation combined with the fact that he's accomplished so much on the field I mean you look at the all-time strikeouts list for left-handers and it's Randy Johnson, Steve Carlton and then CC Sabathia it just felt like this was the right time to do this story and I was excited to have him on the cover too. Make no mistake he was an excellent pitcher this year um, yeah. He he was in a very big part of you know the Yankees' success this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he is not the pitcher that they're counting on for 230 strikeouts and 35 starts in a season. I think they're very happy to get 25 starts in a season. Oh yeah, and maybe those starts are going to be more like four to six innings instead of six to nine innings. But like when they gave him a one year deal, 
before this year, this was what they were hoping for, I think, and they got. DC has <laughs> just about every other accomplishment on his uh, on his shelf in his trophy case. There's one he's still chasing, which is a World Series win. He's won a World Series as a team, mm-hmm. but he hasn't gotten the win as a pitcher, which he said he wanted. And that was so funny to me. I mean, especially <laughs> look, it's 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 especially funny in 2018. You know, this whole season where pitching wins, you know, are just like so fluid and silly at this point i mean the, we just came off a wild card game in which the a's did not use a starting pitcher but yeah he told me that as like just the thing he's chasing and i was laughing he said no nah, it's important you know if you look at the great pitchers in yankees history they've won world series games and i said well you know you have your world series ring man and he's like no nah, they've won world series games <laughs> i've spoken to cc a lot over the years cc does not really open up about his goals very much and this is a weird time to open up about his goals because he could choose to sign a contract with the Yankees. He could choose to sign elsewhere, although I doubt it. Or he could retire. I mean, I think he could very happily retire. And it was funny, though, when he was talking about the things that are in front of him and his idea that he just wants to avoid wearing a collared shirt. Um, that, that's really his goal for retirement, um, which is really what we should all aspire Yeah, that is, that's a sound goal right there. But, I mean, again, this is just like his fear of retirement is this clubhouse breaking down. His fear, mm. I think is Dellen losing his way, is Glaber losing his way. That is just what he has, he knows he built something in this room. That's cool. Well, you can read all about Cece and everything that he and Amber and the town of Vallejo, the city of Vallejo have done in his 38 years. It's an incredible thing and a great legacy that he's built. And you will hear from Cece coming right up. So thanks, John. Thank you. E.C. Sabathia has spent a decade in pinstripes and 18 in the big leagues total. During that time, he has accomplished a lot, but Sabathia's impact goes far beyond his stats on the field. The pitcher grew up in Vallejo, California, in a not great neighborhood, but with the help of many, he made it out. He's never forgotten them, and everything he works for on the field, he gives back tenfold to those important to him. John met up with Sabathia over breakfast in California, and the two had a long chat about the legacy C.C. has built on and off the field. Here's some of that conversation. I got the release on Clemente. That's awesome. No, that's exciting. I've heard people talk in the past about just the unexpected like sense of meaning they get from that. You know, they, they, they don't realize what it means until it happens. Yeah, I, I think it's like the third time I've been nominated. And I always get like, you just feel appreciated for what you've been doing, I guess. But you don't really do it for that. Like, you know what I mean? But it feels good to like have people recognize that you are, out, you know, trying to make a difference. Is it fair to say that your career is in the best case scenario? If you look at 1998 when you're drafted. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when I got drafted, I didn't even like I didn't have mechanics or anything. Like I, you know, what I'm saying so. Like I was just raw. Yeah, I think it was the best case scenario for everybody. For the Indians who drafted me, who was able to get me for six, seven, eight years, whatever, however long it was, for me to be able to come here. Yeah, I mean, I think it was for me, my family, my life. I mean, yeah, so it's been the best case scenario for. Everybody. I mean, I couldn't even have dreamt this. <laughs> you have Cy Young. You have a bunch of playoff appearances. You have a World Series win. You've gotten three contracts, essentially. Which I don't have a win in the World Series, though. I, mean, I need that. Is that something you haven't achieved yet? Is that, yeah. that wears on you? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, just when when start thinking about Yankee history and, and, you know, lining up with different people and things like that when your career's over. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I didn't win a game in the World Series. You know, I only played in one, but... You would like to go out and still perform well and pitch well. So let's put yourself uh, winter after 2008. Where do you think you were then? What would, how would you rate 
who you are and what you are as a Major League Baseball pitcher? Still learning, like still raw, like in a sense. I'm still trying to figure out what was really working for me routine-wise. I was still trying to figure out, you know, in the weight room what to do, in the training room, different things to do to try to stay healthy, stay on the field. I had coming off the oblique strain a couple years in a row. So I was still just trying to figure myself out as an athlete and was nervous, you know. I mean, I, I felt like I had a lot to offer to any organization I was going to sign with, um, but I didn't really know, you know, where, where that was going to be. Did you know what you wanted? No. When did you, when did it start coming into focus? Not until... Not until I started getting offers from team. Start thinking about where you're going to be for the next seven years and if I wanted to go through a rebuilding process again. So once I, once I figured out what I wanted and that was the win, there's only one place to come. When you look at 1998 and then your debut in 2001 through the middle of 2008, what would you say is the best thing you said that you achieved in the day The best thing I achieved? Just in terms of your own person, not even a win or this, but in terms of your personal growth, what do you think you... Man, I went through so much, like, you know, being 17 years old, never leaving Vallejo my life to, you know, being put in North Carolina, you know, away from my mom, not, you know, I was shell-shocked. I cried the first three nights, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't, I never washed clothes. I was, like, a sheltered kid. Like, my mom had did everything for my grandmother. So having three kids at that time when I left, I, you know, I had just had my third kid, but at the time when I left, all that stuff, you know, going through getting robbed and, all that, that different stuff I went through, maturing. I mean, that's just off the field stuff. On the field, you know, Carl Willis teaching me, you know, how to throw a four-seamer or a two-seamer, you know, teaching me how to change up in the big leagues. I mean, I went through a lot of different, uh, a lot of stuff, you know, uh, in those 11 years that I was in the organization. I'm just grateful for everybody that was helped me, you know, Mark Shapiro, you know, Carl Willis, Eric Wedge, um, you know, all my teammates that I had, Jim Tomey, Ellis Burks. Uh, Matt Lawton was huge for me. No, I mean, I don't know. It's just it's a lot to think about, you know. Just sitting here trying to trying to put it all into words, but it's just growth as a man, I guess, as a young man. You know, being 17 years old and you know leaving that, you know, flying out of there. Think just now, I'm just thinking about me, me flying when I got traded, flying out of there. You know, having two kids and my wife pregnant with my third, it was just a big change for me. It was crazy. You go back there once a year. I mean, do you still feel like a tug when you're back there? Oh, yeah. That's, that's like home for me. You know, I'm still very comfortable there. I'm very comfortable on the mountain there, just in the clubhouse around and on the field. You know, it's just it's my very first place to play. So. In terms of what you were able to do on the mound in 2008, what was the biggest change? I mean, obviously, I know you're going to say everything, that you learned how to be a pitcher, but, you know, 2001, 2008, what was the biggest thing you did to improve as a pitcher? I think the, the first half of 2008, I was terrible. I had, like, a 7 ERA. So, I mean, not the first half, the first month. No, I think it was, like, till June. Really? Yeah, I think uh, I pitched against the Yankees. I, I still, I remember looking up there, I think my ERA was, like, 6.5 or 5.5 okay. or something like that. <laughs> But, you turned it around. Nah, it, I just feel like every time, like as, as me as a pitcher, every time I feel like I got something figured out, I always learned a lesson. Like I felt like 2007, I won the Cy Young, so I, I went into the offseason thinking, hey, I, I got a pretty good idea of how to pitch, and you know I should be able to, con con you know, continue to repeat this every year now. Like thinking it was going to be pretty easy. So I think I just, you know, just didn't want to take anything for granted when I got to Milwaukee, and like was just working hard and making sure that I, like I was 
you know, doing everything I need to do off the field to make sure that in the weight room and stuff to make sure that I was able to, to be strong enough to go out and pitch and, and, and be great and be good and try to be good. When I talk to your teammates, I'm talking young, I'm talking old. What you did in Milwaukee that stands out to people. I mean, just the bulldog aspect of wanting the ball every day. Were you just fighting yourself? I mean, in the sense that like you knew, like I just want this, and, and I don't care what it does for me. I don't care if it's good for me, or whatever. I just know I want this ball. Yeah, I just felt like that's what everybody's always expected me to do since the time I was nine years old. You know, that's that's what like I was always expected to do, and I was just given the opportunity to do it. Like I was always the pitcher. I always, you know what I mean? Like it, that was just always my thing. So just being able to be put in that spot. And you know, being able to succeed was, was awesome. Do you worry that you paid the price in that postseason start? Nah, I wasn't. I don't think I was. Uh, I, like physically, I was fine. Yeah. It was more mentally, like just you know, preparing the pitch every third day. Like that was mental. Like getting in the hot tub, doing my, like my routine, my stretching, all that stuff. That's what wore on me more, I think, than actually like going out there and pitching. Because I don't think that that postseason start was on three days rest. That no, wasn't. I think it was on regular rest. So. 161. That's just, I mean, that, that's unfathomable. Like, what does that represent to you that you were able to sign that deal? I don't know. Being able to take care of my family, I guess. I remember waking up the next morning. I remember uh, we, us agreeing on a deal and cash and my agent left my house and slept pretty good. Like that night, I remember I was going to get up and text people the next morning and like, hey, I let everybody know. And I remember waking up uh, in Sports Center and the whole tab on that side was like my name. Like, <laughs> Yankees and all this stuff. I broke out into a crazy sweat. Like, looked at my phone. I must have had like a hundred some text messages. The first person I called was Tory Hunter. I don't know why. It was just he was the first person I called, and we just talked about it. And you know, he kind of talked me through it, and we, I was good. First off, especially with pitchers, baked into pitching contracts is it's supposed to end badly. Sense, right? I mean, you're supposed to be paying for five years, good years, and we'll pay you for two crap years, whatever. No one has ever signed a deal as big as yours even close within 70 million of it and then re-signed with the same team like it, it literally I never, never thought about that it literally has never happened <laughs> that worked, essentially the contract won't work do you, how much pride do you take in? I mean even if it's just like something you're just hearing now that they didn't you know end badly that it ended well no I take a lot of pride in that and, and I mean I want to not, wanna not be, that it's over by the way but. no but I, I, I want to be a part of this organization for Forever, and that's what I mean. That's what you sign up for, and that's what you hope when you when you sign those long deals. You know, I never really thought about it. I never thought about it at the time when, when I signed it. Like, hey, I want this. You know, ten years from now, I want to still. I was just thinking, hey, you know, I want to be healthy enough to maybe sign another deal. You know, it just so, just so happened that it worked out to be here. It's great, and you know, this is you know my family and my home now. And we moved here. You know, moved to New Jersey, and you know, never looked back. It was the best thing for for me and my family was was moving to New York and being being a Yankee. Does, does your life ever shock you? I think it shocks both of us all the time, like every day. Just the, the fact that we have four healthy kids, you know, and like that are getting older and stronger every day. Like we got, you know, a kid going to high school. Like, man, I mean, you know, we were so young when we had him. And, you know, to see him now, like 15 years later, just a good kid, a humble kid. Like he works hard and I don't know. It's like weird sometimes we look at each other and be like, who raised him? You know, like, <laughs> so So I think, I think we're more proud in the sense of that, like, than it is, of, or, or crazy, you know, we think it's like it's crazy for us. Just being old parents, it is like, you know, the, the things that we have, I guess, if that makes sense. Do you have to work in addition to raising ambitious good kids and stuff? You know, they don't know how you, I mean, they, they know how you grew up probably, but I mean, they're never They don't know how we grew that. up, no. Yeah. I mean, do you have to, is it important for them to know that, to, to learn that, that how good they have it? Oh, yeah, I think it is, and I think I think my mom does a good job of that. Does losing feel different now as you get to this stage in your life? No, it's all, I still 
pisses me off more than anything. Like, I mean, it still angers me that I can't control my emotions still at, eight, at 18 years in the big leagues. I mean, yesterday, me throwing my glove, different stuff like that, just like taking myself out of the game. Like, that's still, I mean, that's, you know, that's me when I was 12 years old. I've always been the same as, as far as that, and pitching with emotion, and trying to control and find a fine line between pitching with emotion and being out of control. That was something that me and Marshall Power talked about, you know, when I was young in my 20s in Cleveland, pretty much every day. Just being able to, you know, try to, try to stay even kill and not let the other team know, not to let anybody know if, you, if you're losing or if you're winning or whatever, it's always the same. So, still frustrating me that I still have to deal with that. No, I still hate losing, just like I did when I was a kid. Feel different in Oakland or not? No, I'm I'm actually used to losing here. Like it don't, it don't even bother me no more. To be honest with you, like it is what it is. Do you feel like you, at this stage in your career, when you go to like first inning, how quickly can you tell like this is a seven inning start or this is a three inning start? Uh, I I, don't, I can't tell. You know, there's been times when you know throwing pitches in the first inning, I get three pop ups, and I'm like, man, I don't know how I got out of that. You know, and. Then I end up, you know, seventh inning. So, yeah. nah, I, I never could tell. Does winning feel better now? Yeah. I mean, I, it's just on a larger scale, not for me. Like if we, like two weeks, if we go, we kicking everybody's butt, and I'm a part of that, then that feels good. But like just win one game, I mean, yeah, it feels good. But like, I want to, like, I'm trying to win everything. Yeah. You the feel whole like thing. So like, I, like you feel like me, you have to work harder for your wins now than you used to. Oh yeah, that's why I'm having more fun. I feel like, yeah, because it takes a lot for me to win a game now. You know, I have to. You know, I have to, pitchers got to be working right. You know, I got to stay away from the, the right part of the, part of the lineup. I can't let it hurt me. So I mean, just thinking my way through the games. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it's more satisfying winning games like this. Do you feel like when you retire, whenever that is, like it will be the knee that just tells you I don't want to do this anymore? I hope. I hope it's my knee. And, and not like, you know, something else, you know. But yeah, that, that'll be the reason why I can't, I won't be able to do it. You know, I feel like I take pretty good care of my arm, like a good routine with that. And anything can happen, not going wood, obviously. But yeah, it, that, I mean, it, it'll be pretty soon. <laughs> so 2013, 2014, 2015, those are your first three in your entire career, your first three bad years, let's say. Did you think it was over? I didn't think it was over. I was just trying to figure out a way to get better. I'm not, a, I'm not, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think like that, like it's over or, I don't know, I've never, never been like that. Uh, I was just, just trying to figure out a way to, to try to help the team, you know. I was feeling bad, I was hurt, um, you know, going through a lot of things and, and was just trying to figure out a way to, to try to help be a part of, you know, be part of the team. Really. So other than the cutter and the knee brace, what was it that made it work? That turned everything around? I think it was just trusting the process and trusting throwing the cutter, you know, and not really like half-assing it because I would go out there and still try to pitch the old way half, you know, the game and half the game throw, you know, my cutter. So, you know, once I really just went out and trusted, you know, my cutter and, and this is the way that I have to get people out, I think it just helped. But I, I had a game against, I think it was Toronto, and I think half the game I was like, I'm going to pitch the, my, the way I, I know how to pitch. And I think I gave up like six or seven runs. And then the half the other time I was using my cutter and I had like 12 strikes. I had 12 strikeouts, but I gave up like six runs. How much harder is everything now? As far as pitching? As far as the work up. you do. As far as, you know, your four days in between and the day on the own. Oh, it's harder. But it's just, it's just a, it just is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, it's harder being away from my kids. It's harder, you know, not being around Amber and, and being home to help every day. You know, and missing out, feeling like I'm missing out on things. Um, that's a little harder. Getting through my routine, working out, trying to figure out what I need to do to try to you know, keep my knee healthy. But 
you know, stay healthy enough to go out and pitch. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's, 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 I'm just glad, grateful and glad that I'm able to still do it. But you're choosing to do it. Yeah. And, and, and I'm able to still do it. No, it's not like, you know, I'm not helping. You know, if, if I wasn't here, like, helping the team win, I don't think I would be here, you know. I don't think I could do that. What's retirement going to look like? It's going to look lazy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be fun, man. I mean, uh, no, I, think, I feel like I'll get into it. I have a really good routine in the offseason uh, as far as eating, working out, and all that stuff. So I'll just fall right into that. I feel like when I retire and hopefully special assistant somewhere, doing some podcasting, trying to stay off of TV with a collar shirt on, doing what I want to do. The idea of you know putting yourself out there with Ruko on that podcast, how did that come about? And was that, I mean, I know that you're an open guy and you're a fun guy, but it's still a choice that a lot of guys don't make. What made you want to do I don't know, that? me and Ruko had like a, we got like a group chat and uh, texting back and forth about different games and stuff all the time. And I know he's really good. He was on the radio for a long time and I know he's really good and really prepared. And I just felt like it'll work and, and he did too. And, and uh, I think it works because we almost like complete opposites. You know what I mean? Like he comes in, he's really prepared and he's got everything written down. And I just come in and like, we wing it. And I think our chemistry is good. We, we constantly talk, we're friends and we have a lot in common, which is, which is unique. I think it makes for a good podcast. You're talking, I mean, you are talking to your friends. You're talking to guys you know pretty well, but do you find that you're learning stuff about them when it becomes more, when the microphone goes on? Yeah, and, <laughs> when the, I, and I think, I think even uh, when it's when it doesn't feel like an interview, yeah, you know, conversation. yeah, it's conversation. So I think it, I think, and I think the, the fans get to see some of my teammates in, the, in a different light that they didn't really get a chance to see them, like maybe like Gardy or Sonny and Dylan, <laughs> um, Didi and Hicks's relationship. You know, I don't think people knew how funny Savvy was before we did the podcast. Like, so it's cool to be able to, to see them, to have other people see them. You know how I see them too. So it's cool. How much is the experience of Silver Hill still a part of your life? Oh, it's still, it's still. I mean, I think about that every day. I think of, you know, I mean, I have to. One day at a time process for me. So, yeah, it's still a big part of my life. Still something that is still fresh in my memory that, you know, uh, that I spent the month there. So, I think I want to keep it that way. What do you, I mean, I, I know that the whole experience of doing that is about learning by yourself. But specifically when you think about the reaction around the league, around your clubhouse, what, did, did that help you learn about the type of person you had been all this time, that you had engendered that kind of goodwill from people? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really think about that at, um, going in. But once I was in there and, and you know, you're kind of sitting there, you don't know really know if you're going to play again. You don't know how people are reacting. You don't know if you have a job when you get out. You don't know anything. So, But to see how much love I was getting, and I mean, that helped me get through it for sure. When I first told Chris Young that I was going to go to rehab, he was, my, he was probably the first person, the second person I told, it was Dylan and then him. And the first thing he said to me, he was like, you're going to go through this and come out looking like a hero. And I didn't understand what he said, like, or what it meant, you know, and, and uh, like, I always think about that still. Has it been harder than expected or easier than expected in the aftermath? Or? It's, it's hard every day, obviously. Uh, but it's just part of my life. It's your life, yeah. yeah. The foundation is obviously, you know, it's such a big part of what you do. Did that, knowing your place in the community with these things, has that helped you through some of the darker times, or during those darker times when they were happening? Yeah, I mean, but, I mean, I don't do it because of that. No, no, I, I know you don't do it because of that. Yeah. I'm not saying, but, you know, you're not just anybody. You're somebody who, frankly, by virtue of who you are, 
tell her your skin on these things, you have an opportunity to be a role model in a way that some people don't. I mean, is that something, is that, that's, that can be baggage that you necessarily might not want all the time, yeah. but it's there. No, it's, it's always there, but, but that was something that I, that I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a good role model, I wanted to be a positive role model for, for kids in Vallejo and the kids that I grew up like me or, you know, grew up that, that I grew up like them or they grew up like me in, in that same city. I always, it's always Vallejo for me, that's always the first thought. And like, you know, representing that city well and, and not, you know, letting them down, I guess. When I think about the youth and who I'm helping, that's always the first people I, I, I think about. And then, you know, it just goes to the other communities, I guess. You didn't wait until you became a Cy Young winner to be outspoken about issues that were important to you. When you see, I mean, just something like today, the news today with Kaepernick and stuff like that, how much a part of your life is that? Speaking that? Speaking out and just knowing that, you know, you I, represent just, something. Yeah, I, just, I guess that's just who I am. I didn't, just always felt like, you know, I need to speak out when, when I don't think things are right or if I feel a different, have a different opinion about something. Um, that's just always who I've been. And, Got me in trouble a lot as a kid, but um, you know, it just, just makes me who I am, I guess. Are you optimistic about the African American experience in baseball and kind of where things are going? Are you pessimistic? Are you nervous? Very nervous. But as I get into watching my son and him playing and, and you know going to different showcases and stuff, I see a lot of little uh, African American kids playing games still. So that makes me feel good, but just on this level, it makes me nervous. And, and you know, the college level and in the minor leagues and, and just watching what's happening makes me a little nervous. So what can we do? I don't know. That That's the biggest thing is I, I, don't, I honestly don't know what we can do. I think making the game as, as available and as free, as less charge as possible in some of these high-risk areas is, is definitely a priority. Like having the academies in Oakland, you know, we need one in Sacramento. You know, we need one around here where some of these kids can get to it. I think you lose kids from Little League to high school. so. A program for these kids from their 12 to 15, some kind of you know free league or, or something like that, where we can get these kids to keep playing. Um, I think we lose a lot of kids to football and basketball in that time. So I don't I don't I don't know what we can do. I think it's up to players like myself, Adam Jones, Jimmy Rollins, and, and these guys to start putting stuff together and, and try to help maybe form a league or something. Is that ever un unfair for you guys? I mean, I'm, I'm just picking a name out of a hat here, but Greg Bird doesn't have to worry about that stuff. No. And that's no knock on Greg Burr, but I never thought about it like that. I mean, that's that's here here to try to help the next generation. And by the color of my skin, that you know, it's just the African American community. And no, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I, I love the responsibility, and, and I, I'm here because somebody helped me in, in different programs. So I have to do that for some of these kids out here. When you, I mean, when you can put together a lineup of you know, Giancarlo. Aaron, you on the mound, whatever. I'm from New York. That resonates, right? I mean, that means something. McCutcheon. McCutcheon. I, I, I haven't even met McCutcheon. Yet. <laughs> but yeah, no, McCutcheon. Yeah, Curtis Granderson when he was here. You know what I'm saying? Great role model and, and doing things right in the community. So, yeah, it makes it makes a huge difference for sure. You got out of a bad situation, obviously. I mean, I'm talking to Coach Hobbs, and he's talking about, you know, police tape across your driveway. And just like one of those days that CC couldn't get out of the house, there was police tape across the driveway. I mean, how much is that part of your day-to-day? -day? Man, you know, I always tell Amber this, and I always, like, tell people, or tell my mom this, too. Like, I guess I grew up bad, but I didn't think so. It was okay. just my family. It was my life. It was my, like, it was just what I was in. So, I mean, I feel like people grew up in way worse situations than I had. I had, a lo I had love. I had a loving family. You know, I had support. 
I mean, I just showed him a video right now of me when I was 11 years old, my grandmother and my mom and my aunt walking in. They never missed a game. So, I, you know, I know some kids that didn't even have that, you know, and had the others going on too. So, you know, I, I, had a, I feel like I had a good upbringing, man. I mean, I was in a, a difficult situation a lot of times and, you know, grew up in a, in a bad neighborhood, but I had the love of my family and support, so I always felt like I was in a little bubble. Coach Hobbs says that there were guys who just wouldn't let you screw up, and obviously your family, you know, Pete Revere's your mother, but he says there were guys around that school who just made sure that you would make the right choices. Mm -hmm. who, uh, do you still talk to those guys? Do you still know them? Are they? Yeah, like one of my best friends. He caught me when I, I came out here. I came a little earlier to fly ahead for the game on Monday, and the first person I called was my high school catcher. And we the same age. He might be a little younger than me, but he was always like a positive role model, like an influence on me, you know, in high school. And, you know, a couple of times when I was probably going to make the wrong decision, he would be there to talk me out of some things, different things like that. So, what was his name? Dave Bernstein. What was Coach Hobbs like as a, I mean, because he, he loves you. Nah, that's my guy, man. I definitely wouldn't be sitting here without him. He was hard, he was tough, but he was exactly what we needed. He taught me everything about. Thinking, thinking my way through the game and just knowing certain situations, learning how to be a leader. He taught me that. I mean, I think he saw that right away out of my group of friends and like my class, who was going to be who. And he pulled me aside right away and taught me how to be a leader and, and to do the right things. And that if I did the right thing, that everybody else would do the right thing. I think I, I, I had to realize that at a very young age. And he helped me realize that. What part of like what about you do you attribute to Vallejo? Like what what part of your just like personality and your life and the way all you of are? it, man? Like everything, how passionate I am. Like if you see me out on on the field, like how I am on the field, I just think like it, I mean if you if you watched a, a Babe Ruth game or or a Little League game or the whole game was like that. Everybody on the field is like that. I'd be out there screaming and yelling. You know, I mean it's just. It was good competition, it was great players. I mean, we had some great players come out of that city, but it was a show, you know what I'm saying? And it, it was some, just the way I am, I think, you know, I represent that city, I think. I mean, it's just in me. You expect, when you, whenever it is that you retire, do you plan on staying out east, or do you think you want to come back to the side? No, I think I'll stay, stay in Jersey, at least for the yes. near future, for the kids, and, you know, everybody's doing well so well out there. I didn't, never really thought, would have thought it, you know, I say I live on the East Coast, but I think I'll stay out there for, the, for a little while. You're, whenever it is you retire, I'm glad to find 10 to 15 years in you, you're going to retire <laughs> as number three on the list for lefties all time in strikeout. That's amazing. I mean, you know, you, you, this game goes back a long way. When you're, you know, number three on something, that mean, that's meaningful, right? Yeah, but that's why when you asked me, could I ever thought I dreamt this about my career? No, I mean, I never would have thought I'd be third under Randy Johnson and Steve Carlton. Like, it's crazy. I'm like a kid from Vallejo, you know what I'm saying? Like, only supposed to make it out of there. <laughs> Does the strikeout feel better now than you said? I don't feel like I get many strikeouts, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I'm always 0-2, but I never can can put guys away. So, nah, I felt like when I when I was younger, that, that meant more, a lot more, me striking out guys and having the big strikeout numbers and, like, you know, being that guy. But now, I mean, I just want to get out. Ever since I've known Dellen, I mean, he's been attached at the hip to you. You've had a lot of guys like that in your career, obviously, in virtue of just being around for a long time. How important is their success to you? Man, these like my little brother, so like, you know, his success is like me, my success. I feel like, I feel like I'm a part of it. You know, I feel like uh, it's, it's just awesome to watch, man. And to, just to watch him, you know, the way he's coming out of his shell in, in the clubhouse and like, you know, he was all shy and quiet when he first came up. And, 
to watch him now. He's dancing around everywhere all the time. He's just himself, so it's cool to see. What is the Hall of Fame, man? Man, I never thought about going to the Hall of Fame, and I always say that and, until this last one watching. I was watching, like, just guys I played against, you know, Jim Tony, you know, Vladdy. I guess, it, yeah, I guess they would be my peers, right? Um, I guess I played against them long enough, but, yeah, it'd be cool. Like, to be able to to get together with that group of guys every summer, it'd be fun. Like, I'm the ultimate get-together guy. Like, I love to get people together, and if I, if I can get in that get-together, that'd be fun. <laughs> I mean, have you you've been to Cooperstown? I've never been. You never been? I went one time. I pitched in that Hall of Fame game when I was in like A ball. Okay. But I didn't get to go to the Hall of Fame or nothing. Like I, I showed up and I went to the locker room, pitched the game, and we left. Like, I mean, like you, everything you're doing is history. Like I mean, literally. And I don't mean the sense of like you know the strikeout record or anything like that. I mean, it's like there's an archive and a list of every single pitch you've thrown and everything. Like you know, you're a part of baseball history, and you. You'd be part of baseball history. See, but that's why I don't. Work, that's, why, that's why I don't worry about like the Hall of Fame because I feel like I'm a part of baseball history no matter what. That makes sense. So I it mean, sense, yeah. if I get in or not, I don't think it's gonna change. I think the Hall of Fame, man, it's so hard to get in with, like especially in baseball, man. You gotta have the right numbers and voters, and I mean, it's just it's hard. So when you hear you know, the game evolves, the game changes. You know, you have infielder standing, different places than ever stood before. You know, when you hear some of the old-timers crap on the game now, how do you feel about that? It, it, it makes me sad. It's tough. You know, we want them to love the game just like we do and, and love watching them play. But I think every generation is going to hate the, the, the next. You're going to hate the next generation. So it is what it is, you know. Like, I'm sure I'll have something to say about the next generation. So I think I think it's just, it's just as players, we're used to it. Do you feel like it's your job to leave the clubhouse better than you found it? When I retire, you mean? Or when, when, when you retire? Or, or, or if I play on a different team? Yeah, or even just if, if guys you're playing with are going to different teams. I mean, you know, I've seen you with Glaber. I've seen you with Andrew Barr. You know, I mean, that's a choice you're making. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it'll bother me that if, if I retired after next year or if I play somewhere else next year and I hear that these guys are fighting in the clubhouse and stuff is going on, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, that'll bug, bug me a little bit because, I mean, I know these guys now well and I know what is capable of in that room and, and yeah, it'll just be a weird thing, I guess. If that makes sense because we don't have any of that right now. You know, last year you couldn't have gotten closer to the World Series than you guys did without getting there, obviously. And I, I think not enough people talk this year about just the crazy injuries. I know no one ever wants to blame injuries, but at some point you could say, like, half our team was injured for a better part of the season. Does the day-to-day -day wear on you of just, you know, a two-game losing streak, a three-game losing streak, a three-game winning streak, or is it just going to sort itself out on October 3rd? You'll it be where you'll be? It always sorts itself out, man. You can't, I don't think you can really get panic about a couple little stretches. It's a long season. I always say that about, you know, when I'm pitching. You know, if I go through some tough stretches, I think, you know, or some stretches where I'm not throwing the ball as well as I, as I, as I feel like I can, you know, I always feel like it plays itself out. Even the times when I'm going really good, I never try to get too high because I know at some point it's going to even itself out. Thank you so much for joining us. Check us out on Twitter, at Yanks Magazine. Email us, podcast at yankees.com. Like, subscribe, rate, review to the podcast, and uh, enjoy the rest of the postseason, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. 